Hello, I am Matthew Hurst, the worship minister of First Baptist Church, Watauga, and we want to simply say thank you for listening to these messages. We'd like to invite you on Sunday morning at 1045 to join us in worship of God and to hear from His Word. Our mission here at FBC Watauga is to exalt the Savior equip the saints, and to evangelize the lost one person at a time. So I pray as you listen to these messages that you would be encouraged and equipped as you listen to the word of the Lord today. Well, good morning. It is good again to be here with you, and I feel like I just preached this sermon a little while ago. This is still new to me in a lot of ways, preaching uh, uh, the sermon twice on a Sunday morning. Today we're going to be looking at uh, really a transition time between, uh, in big theological terms, the Old Testament covenant or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We're seeing John the Baptist handing off uh, really the keys to the primary ministry, not that he had any choice, uh, to Jesus in John chapter 30. We're going to be dealing with an issue that a lot of us struggle with to some extent. Some of us struggle with it more than others. I'll illustrate it this way. I've got uh, three dogs now. Uh, One of them is Rosie's son, Katie's dog, uh, her son, Bo, and he's kind of his own little unique thing. He's a a heavy little sausage and uh, just doesn't you know, do a whole lot, care a whole lot for the other two. But then we have Coda, who many of you have met. He's pretty high-strung, Australian shepherd, kind of a protector. He likes to be around us. He wants to be with us. And then Luna is our latest acquisition. Luna is a uh, a tracking dog. Uh, I rescued her late last year, so she's a little over a year old. We've had her for about nine months. And uh, Luna and... and, uh, uh, Coda, they're the ones who want to compete for attention. Very interestingly, as Luna has come to warm up to us for the longest time, and even still today sometimes, she'll be laying down somewhere, and I'll call Luna, and Luna won't respond. She'll lay there, and she'll look at me and think about coming over to see me. But if I call Coda, well, guess who comes running? Here comes Luna, because she doesn't want to miss out on any of the attention. She doesn't want to just get her attention. She wants to get Coda's attention. And actually, that goes both ways. Sometimes if I can't get Coda to come to me, all I got to do is call Luna, and Coda will come running. So, uh, you know, they've, they've got to get their nose in there, and, and, and then they both want to be petted, because uh, they both want attention there from their masters. You know, in a lot of ways, we as human beings are like that. There's some of us that just have to be in the limelight. Now, you see this especially, you get together at a family reunion or you get together with, you know, your kids and and maybe the grandkids are there, and there's always that one, three or four-year-old, maybe a five-year-old, who has to put on the show. They want to get up front, they want to sing, they want to dance, they want you to see them. They don't care what the adults are doing, they don't care necessarily what the rest of the kids are, they want to be seen. They want to be the center of attention. Now, the truth is, There's a little bit of that in all of us. Now, some of us more than others, as I said. Uh, Some of us just, we feel like we need to be up front. We have to, you know, we want people to see us. Some of us, most of the time, are content to be in the back and off to the side. And yet we still, there's a part of this human that wants to be recognized for what we've done, for our our part, uh, for for people to know us and for people to care about our part. And so it's, it's really hard for us, especially once we have kind of been in that position, to turn that over to someone else. 
And uh, that's really kind of the story that we see here. Not so much with John the Baptist, but with his disciples. So we're going to begin in John chapter 3, right where we dropped off last week. We're going to pick up in John chapter 3, verse 22. And I'm going to get started, and we're going to kind of start and stop in the beginning as we kind of walk through the story, and then we'll, we'll bite off the rest of the chunk. The scripture says here in verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John includes this uh, time identifier here, and he gives us a glimpse at a part of Jesus' ministry that really is not included in the synoptics at all. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, you see the first interaction that Jesus has with John, and then you see Jesus' ministry begin up in Galilee. John has told us a little bit about what happened in Judea before Jesus began his Galilean ministry, after he had first been introduced to John, probably baptized by John in his baptism. Here, Jesus and his disciples were still in the Judean countryside. And the language here, uh, some of the, the scholars suggest that he spent quite a bit of time there with his disciples, those who had already chosen to follow him. He was probably teaching them and training them in the Judean countryside before he went further north. John, verse 23, was also baptizing in Anon near Salim. Because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry is when Jesus is when John ended up being thrown in prison and not long after that beheaded. And so what John the gospel writer is doing here is he's given us a little bit of insight into that time period between John, when Jesus first met John the Baptist and uh, Jesus' Galilean ministry. And in this time, Jesus is spending time with his disciples, but he's baptizing, and John is further north. Salim uh, most likely is, uh, there's a couple locations that have been identified for this, this area, but it's up in Samaria, several miles north of where Jesus was, and so they certainly would know of each other's ministries, they were aware of what all was going on, and John was up there baptizing in Anon near Salim. Now, I'm going to stop here and give you all a little short excursus is what it's called when you're in a theology class because I think that this is an is important point for us. You'll recognize here one of the verses that Baptists, or I'm going to use the word immersers, use to suggest that New Testament form of baptism was always baptism by immersion. And there's, in, this, in the context of this text, it says John was baptizing in Anon near Salim. The word Anon is a word that's been transliterated from a Hebrew and Aramaic word that means spring. And so uh, he, was, he was there because there was a spring there. And more importantly, John, the gospel writer, adds this, because there was plenty of water there. If the New Testament form of baptism were not by immersion, if it was only by sprinkling, he would not have needed to go where there was plenty of water. Now, let me add one more thing there, and this is uh, important as well. The word baptize in the English, in all of our English translations, comes from a Greek word. It's two Greek partner verbs. One of them is baptizo, the other is baptizomai. And the those words in the original language mean to immerse, 
to, it, it's used in washing dishes where you put the dishes always, all the way into the water, but it's also meant, uh, used to talk about fully submersing or immersing uh, someone so that somebody's completely wet. That's what the word means. When the Bible was being translated into English for the first century that was being translated into English, 14, or 15th and 16th centuries primarily, there was an issue because the church had adopted a practice of baptism that did not include immersion. It was simply a, a sprinkling. And so when the translators come to that word, they're kind of at a bypass because if they translate what the word really means, it's going to create an issue for the practice and theology that was ongoing in the church at that time. And so that was, that was at the beginning of a time where the Bible was being put into everyday language, where everybody could pick up a Bible and read it. We, we can't imagine that there was a day that the Bible was only in a foreign language that only certain scholars really had access to. And they were so expensive because they were all hand copies that only certain people, only the privileged would be able to read it. So the Bible was about to go out to the masses and the translators did not want to translate the word. Otherwise, what this verse would read, it would say John was also immersing in Anon because there were plenty of water there. People were coming and being immersed before, since John had not been thrown in prison. In fact, John would be called John the Immerser. So because they couldn't translate the word, they just made up a new English word. It's what we call transliterating. They made a word in English that sounded like the Greek word. So they took the, the original language, the original word baptiz, baptizo, and made up an English word, baptize. Nobody really knew what it meant. They didn't know that it meant to immerse, so they could simply say Oh, well, that means so that's what we're doing. We're baptizing people when we sprinkle them. Now, I'm not here, uh, I'm just here to kind of give you the, the, the details. That's why we as a New Testament church believe in baptism by immersion. That's the New Testament model. I don't believe that that disqualifies somebody from the kingdom of God. If they were uh, born again, trusted Christ as their Savior, and they were sprinkled uh, in, in another faith or in another denomination. But certainly, if we strive to, to follow the New Testament model as best we can, we believe in baptism by immersion. Both because of what the word means, but also because of this passage. John was looking for a place that had enough water. So enough on that. From, uh, let me go ahead and read the rest of the text, and then we're going to look at this in two big bites. The scripture says, since, uh, after, after verse 24, since John had not been thrown in prison, then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. 
he testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. So for the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I've, you're, if you're reading from the Christian Standard Bible that I'm using uh, for my preaching today, it breaks this uh, story down into two sections, and those are the two sections that I'm going to use for my dividing line, and so that'll give you an idea of where I'm headed. The first section deals with giving way to Jesus, and that's really what that first section is all about. It's about John stepping back out of the spotlight and allowing Jesus to have the spotlight all to himself. Now, this is not new to John. John, from the, from the earliest part of his ministry, he knew what his purpose was. He knew what he had been called to do. He understood his mission. In fact, going all the way back to the day of his birth, John's dad had a hymn that he sang over John. You find this in Luke chapter 1, verse 66, 67. In that passage, I'm just going to read a, a short passage from the end of that song, Zacharias sings, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." Zacharias understood the role of his son. He knew the prophecy about John the Baptist. He knew who his son was. And he recognized that his son was not to be the one. He was to be the one who pointed to the one. And so John the Baptist certainly understood that. And he had already told his disciples that. This is not about me. This is about Jesus. He's the one. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. And so when you get into the text here, we, we, we ask ourselves a few questions. Are we at peace to step aside and let others succeed? Are we willing to be one of the many and not the one? Or do we always feel like we have to be the one? Can we be content with our purpose in God's plan if he doesn't put us in the center ring. John begins to give way to Jesus here, and this is that transition I was talking about. It's an interesting study because the scripture says in verse 25, a dispute arose among, between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. Now, this was just a Jew. This doesn't say it was a, somebody from the Sanhedrin. It doesn't identify this as, as a Pharisee. It just simply says one of John's disciples started having an argument with a Jew, and somehow the name of Jesus ended up getting mixed in with that. And so the disciple from John comes to John the Baptist uh, after he's been in this argument. He's got some questions for John the Baptist, and he comes and he tells him this. And I want you to listen closely to the words that the disciple uses. He says, Rabbi... The one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing. And everyone is going to him. I want you to hear two things here. First of all, the, 
John the Baptist's disciple could not even bring himself to mention Jesus' name. You can't tell me he didn't know who Jesus was. You can't tell me he didn't know him as the one from Nazareth, the Galilean, Jesus. They knew each other. John had been pointing to him. John had been talking about him. John had introduced him to him. But this, this disciple was so upset about Jesus taking away disciples from his master, whom he was following, he was so upset about that that he couldn't even bring himself to mention the name of Jesus. John, John had been the one doing the work. John had been the one out in the desert preaching the word of the Lord. John had been the one that had throngs of people, whether uh, out of conviction or out of curiosity, coming to hear him preach. John had been the one, I mentioned this earlier, if, if, if you've heard the old term fire and brimstone preacher, John the Baptist was the original He's the one that he points to, to the king and he says, you're committing adultery and you're doing it with her who's riding with you in the chariot. Got his head chopped off for it, right? John the Baptist was out there doing the hard work. He wasn't going to weddings. In fact, John's disciples griped about that. Jesus was, Jesus was the one that was having all the fun. Him and his disciples, as they were getting started, John was out there just slaving away. And now this disciple is upset. Because John is losing disciples, his ministry is starting to wane. And this guy's taking them away. So he points to him, he says, the, and, and not only that, John, you were nice to him. <laughs> the one that you pointed out, the one that you built up, that you lifted up, he's taking the disciples. And then listen to what he says. And, and, and he's baptizing, and everybody's going to him. Didn't it just say that John was still baptizing? Didn't it just say that John still had followers and he was still baptizing Anon near Salim? But the disciple is so upset and so irrational and emotional, everybody's going to him. Well, isn't that what we do as humans? We get all upset and, and we use hyperbole. Oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. No, it's not. God's still on his throne. And John wants him to understand that this was our purpose. John recognized that he was not the most important person in the room. Jesus was. And that's what we've got to come to understand. We need to understand that whatever room we're in, we're not the most important person in the room. Jesus is. You know, if we gather together as we worship him today, Jesus ought to be the focus of our attention. Even while his word is being preached, your ears ought to be attuned to what is it the Lord is telling me today. Y'all have heard the term. It's been popular around for, gosh, over 30 years now. And uh, it's kind of waning, but there was this, this term among church growth was, was uh, uh, extremely popular. It was referred to as seeker-sensitive services. Our services ought to be sensitive to the seekers. I prefer the idea of having a savior sensitive service that everything that we do every song that we sing every every passage we read every message that's preached points to Jesus and we're sensitive to him because he alone is worthy he is the most important person in this room today I'm not Matthew's not you're not Jesus is. 
It's about his will, about his purpose, and about his plan. The, in the year that our oldest daughter, Katie, passed away, Max Licato wrote a book. I, I, I used to read his books devotionally. I could not wait for each one to come out. I would get it, and I'd read it in two or three days. And in 2004, or, uh, a couple months before Katie passed away in mid-2004, his book was published, It's Not About Me. And in that book, uh, the last section of it was about us being mirrors of God, that our lives were never intended to focus on us, for us to be in the spotlight so that we receive glory. And these are the chapter titles of that last se- or second section of the book. My message is about him. My salvation is about him. My body is about him. My struggles are about him. And my success is about him. As I read that book, especially when I got to the chapters on my body is about him and my struggles are about him, essentially he's saying, my body is not about me, it's about him. My struggles are not about me, it's about him. I remember uh, handing that book over to Katie. She was 14 years old at the time and, and a good reader. And, and I said, Katie, I know this may be hard for you to read, but I want you to read these two chapters. My body is about him and my struggles are about him. And she read those chapters and we, we actually discussed it on one of our last trips, the last month of her life, back to Dallas Children's Medical Center to understand that even her death, her life, her body, God had created for his glory. It wasn't about her or us. God had a purpose and a plan for her life. It was about him. And, and as long as we are content in allowing God to have the light, allowing the spotlight to shine on Jesus, not only will he be honored and glorified, but our life will find meaning and fulfillment even in its struggles. So John the Baptist at this point is losing disciples. He's nearing the end of his life. He's about to have his head chopped off. And he recognizes it's time for him to step out of the spotlight and let Jesus have the full spotlight. We've got to be willing to get out of the spotlight for God's plan. Sometimes we are so insistent that it's about us that we miss out on God's very best. I I want to share something just as testimony, not to in any way point to me, but I want to point to God with it. Two years ago uh, in August... Uh, I was having a particularly weird day. I was, uh, uh, had some things happen uh, as we were dealing with our children and grandchildren, and, and I was headed out of town, and I called Kevin, and he told this story a couple weeks ago. I want to emphasize it here. I called Kevin, and I said, Kevin, I don't know what's going on, but I think the Spirit of God has told me that I don't need to preach Sunday. I said, I've never done this before. I've never just stepped out of the I'm not sick. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be there. I plan to be there to hear you preach, but I'm not supposed to preach Sunday. Would you mind? He goes, no, I'll start getting ready uh, right now. And I, I said, all right, I appreciate that. Little did I know that Sunday morning at about 5.30, I was going to be in the emergency room over here waiting to have my appendix taken out. I didn't know that. Kevin didn't know that, but God knew that. If I had been insistent, but I'm the pastor, I have to be in the pulpit, I have to preach. 
we would have missed out on an incredible blessing of seeing God move the way that he moved and give testimony to his faithfulness and his sovereignty. A God that knew ahead of time that I was going to be out. We were able to give him glory and honor and still point back to that as one of those times that look what God did. Because that's one of those things that you cannot explain in human terms. But we would never get to see that. And I honestly wonder, because I know that I'm not always as sensitive to the Spirit as I should be. So I wonder, have there been times that I've missed out on God's best because I was unwilling to step back from the spotlight? I insisted on having it my way. I think we're all prone to that. We'll only get to see God move in those miraculous ways if we, by faith, walk in a relationship with his Spirit and give him the opportunity. We have to be willing to step out of the spotlight. And that's what John the Baptist is willing to do here. And then finally, John used a word here that I think is extremely important to us. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. If you are walking in tune with the Lord, in a relationship with the living God, Jesus and his purpose must be gaining influence in your life every single day. Every day, his purpose, his kingdom, his glory should be more important to you than it was yesterday. You should care less and less and less about the things of this earth and the things of this world and more and more and more every single day that you walk with him, care more and more about him. And I chose that word on purpose because John uses it. Most of the time when I, when I give an application point in my sermon, I'll use something like, we should. John doesn't say, I should decrease and he should increase. John says, I must decrease and he must increase. The only way that God's purpose is going to be achieved in your life and that he, you're going to find fulfillment is if you have that attitude in yourself that it's about him, it's about his glory, it's about his kingdom. I want people more and more and more to see him and less and less of me. John MacArthur said, the measure of success of any ministry, and I believe that this is also the measure of success for a life. But he said, the measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the minister. So I think the measure of success for your life and my life in or out of ministry is the measure of real success is not going to be how many followers we have or how much we gather into ourselves, but how much out of our life we influence people to follow Jesus. So John says, I've got to get out of the way. I've got to step aside so that Jesus can have the light. And then the next six verses, John goes on to explain why. And I want to move through these uh, six things that John says, the reasons that we give Jesus the light. The first one is this, we should submit to the only one who is from above. He emphasizes that twice. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from, from heaven is above all. He wants us to hear and understand that Jesus is the one, the only one, the one and only, however many times and however you want to say it, it's only Jesus 
He is the only man who has ever come out of heaven to walk on this earth. And John here is focusing on this idea that Jesus is a man. His disciples are seeing him as a man. They don't have their theology complete in, in this Jesus was born of, of the Holy Spirit, of a Virgin Mary. They don't have all that figured out, yet we have a hard enough time figuring it out, looking at it from 2,000 years of theology, trying to understand it. What they see is a man who's up there baptizing, who followers are starting to turn to him, and John is saying he's the Messiah, and they don't have their head all wrapped around that, but John is saying that man, that Jesus, he is the only one who has come from above. And he, he is the only one at the, the time of their life. There had never been a prophet before him. There had never been a man before him that, that was like Jesus. No one had ever existed from eternity past, been a part of creation, stepped out of heaven, entered into the, the, the womb of a virgin to be born of the Holy Spirit and to walk on this earth. No one has ever done that except for Jesus. He is the only one from above. He is the only one from heaven. Now, 2,000 years after that, we can look back over another two millennia and say it still. He is the only one from above. He is the only one from heaven. Yes, we recognize that he was God in the flesh. He was God also. Jesus walking on this earth both had the attributes of divinity and the attributes of humanity. But for those guys that were watching him dunk people in the Jordan River, they saw him as a man. And John said, yes, he is, but he's from above. Why is it that we ought to step out of the way, surrender to him, and give him the limelight? Because he is the only man who's ever come out of heaven. He is the one and only Son of God. However you want to define him, he is the only person who has seen it all. Jesus is the one from above, and because he is from above, he is above all. He is greater than any other man that's ever walked on the earth, and is greater of any man that ever will walk on this earth. He is it. He is the one. And so if you're going to choose anybody on this earth to follow, it's, it's okay to have heroes. But if you're going to choose anybody to follow, and you've got thousands of choices, and there's one that is unlike any other, there is one who is above all, he's the one you follow. John's saying, don't follow me. I'm earthly. You can follow me up to extent, because what I've been saying, everything I've said anyway has come from him. He's the one. He's here now. Follow him. Jesus is the one who is above all. We should submit to him as the one and only Lord of our lives. Second, we should listen to him as the key eyewitness. I love what John says here. Y'all been listening to me. You've heard what I've been saying. I've been declaring God's message of repentance. But you need to understand that everything I know I got from him anyway. And all that I know is earthly. The one who comes from above... Look in verse 32, he testifies about what he has seen and he has heard. And yet no one's accepting his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Why should we listen to Jesus above any other philosopher, teacher, ruler, thinker who's ever lived? Why should we take his words and place them above all others? Because he has seen it all. He is the only one who is there at creation. He is the only one who understands the intricacies of how the universe is oriented. 
He is the only one who has seen and, and understands how the, the cell reduplicates itself. How it, at, at a very moment about 12 different systems in the human cell all come alive at once. Unlike an evolutionist might struggle with. If, if you believe in evolution, how does one of those things begin to happen that has to have this other thing happen? It all had to happen at once. Jesus knows because he was there. He was there in heaven when it was all created. He's seen it all. He's seen it from the beginning of time. He's seen it from above the heavens. He's seen the big view. He's seen the small view. He knows it all. And so if you need an eyewitness to truth, it's him. Everything that I tell you about truth comes from earthly terms. The middle of verse 31 again. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. All I can give you is my view and what he has told me to say. You know, isn't that truth of us as preachers? I have nothing of value that comes from me. If I'm not preaching God's word and doing my best to help God's word come alive and be opened up so that you can better grasp what God is saying through his word, I'm wasting my breath. My words are not the words of life. His are. Jesus has the words of life. Jesus is the perfect eyewitness. You want to know what heaven looks like? Ask him. He's been there. You want to know what the heavenly father's really like? If you really want to know the wrath of the Heavenly Father, talk to his son. He's been there. If you really want to understand the love of the earthly father, look to Jesus. He's been there. If you want to understand the glory and the majesty of the heavens, ask him. He's been there. Why is it that Jesus ought to be first and foremost and that his words ought to be more important than any other word in our life? Because he is the one and only eyewitness of everything. He was there from the beginning, he was there in the heavens, and he walked on this earth. He is the one. He is the eyewitness who's seen it all. Third, we should accept the gift that he offers us of his generous spirit. For the one whom God sends speaks God's words, since he gives the spirit without measure. When, when Christ pours out his words on you, you have an opportunity to, to grasp them and to be enriched by them because he pours out his spirit generously. I illustrated this in the, in the early service kind of like this. You remember when you, you'd heard the message of the gospel preached? Some of you heard it time and time and time again. And it would go in one ear or out the other. It would go over your head. You didn't fully understand it. And then there was that day. There was that one time and you might have been sitting in a church like this, or you might have been at a, at a revival service, you might have been in an outdoor meeting, you might have even been at home. And something from the Spirit of God began to be tug on your heart. And it began to pull at you. And, and all of a sudden, all of those words that you'd heard before had new meaning. And you begin to understand what it was that the Spirit of God was trying to show you. What, what, maybe what the preacher was saying or maybe what your mom or dad was telling you, it began to make sense because the Spirit of God was being poured out on your heart without measure. And the Spirit of God began to draw you into a relationship with God. Why is it that it's more important to listen to what Jesus has to say than what I have to say, John the Baptist says? Because he's the one who's going to pour out his Spirit upon you without measure. 
How much of the Spirit do you need? How much of the Spirit do you get? Without measure. Christ the Son pours out God the Spirit upon his people and upon those whom he's speaking to. He's the perfect eyewitness. He knows the truth, but he also pours out his Spirit so that you can know. Fourth, we need to trust the one who is trusted by the Father. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. I love this. The Father loves me. The Father loves Dennis. And God has entrusted me with a lot. Earlier in the early service, I was overcome during one of the worship hymns, and I just began to praise and thank the Lord for the blessings that he's poured out on my life, the fact that I have life, the life he's given me, thanking him for my wife. I have one of the most incredible wives. I think I have the most incredible wife that's ever walked the face of this earth. Thanking him for, for the blessings of my brother and my brothers. Thanking him for my kids and my grandkids. Oh, the many blessings the Lord's poured out on me. And, and he's, he's entrusted me with a wonderful church family. He's entrusted me with wonderful friends. He's entrusted me with a ministry. He's entrusted me as a pastor with souls of men and women. Hebrews 13 says that, that I bear a responsibility as a pastor for, for the souls of the sheep who God has put under my care. He's entrusted me with a lot, but he hadn't trusted me with everything. There's a lot of things that I wanted him to entrust me with that he hasn't. And you know why? Because he couldn't trust me. I'm not that trustworthy. I'd get arrogant. I'd probably blow a bunch of stuff. I'd make a bunch of messes if he gave me the wrong kind of stuff or he entrusted me with the wrong amount of stuff. And God knows how much he can trust me with and how much he can't trust me with. And so God has entrusted me with a multitude of blessings and a multitude of responsibilities, but there's a lot out there that he hasn't entrusted me with because I'm not that trustworthy. The Father loves the Son, and he entrusted everything into his hands. And you remember, John's talking to his disciples about a man who's baptizing down south of them a few miles. And he says, you need to understand that the Heavenly Father has entrusted him with everything. All things have been entrusted to the Son because he is trustworthy. If God the Father can entrust his Son with everything, can you trust him with your finances? Can you trust him to fill your life with meaning and purpose and to give you the very best? If he calls you to tithe and you look at your checkbook and you don't feel like you have enough money to tithe, can you trust him? Can you trust him with your children? Can you trust him with your dating life? Who he may have for you in the future? Absolutely. If the son was trustworthy enough for the father and trust him with everything, the rotation of the earth, the tilt of the earth, the, 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 the amount of time it takes the, the sun to, uh, the, the, the earth to move around the sun, 
God entrusted Jesus with everything. Colossians 1 says that in Christ all things are held together. If God can entrust his son with everything, you can too. If the world's problems are not too much for Jesus to handle, mine aren't and neither are yours. Can you entrust him with the upcoming election? Or do you need to get involved on Facebook to influence it? Can you trust him? And see, here's the most important thing that God entrusted Jesus with. And you see it fleshed out in, the verse, in verse 36. God entrusted his son with the eternal destiny of his most prized possession. More important to God than all of the stars in the sky, than the beauty of the mountains, than the depths of the seas, than all the animals, all the fish of the sea, all the birds of the sea, or the birds of the air. God entrusted the eternal destiny of his most prized possession, you and me, and every other human that has walked on the face of this earth, God entrusted the, our eternal destiny with his son who walked on this earth in human form, faced temptation like you and I faced temptation, struggled in some ways like you and I struggled, but yet without sin, God entrusted him with his most prized possession. You see, every other thing that God created, except possibly the angels, I didn't mention this in the first service, but every other thing that God's created, the stars, the, the sea, the earth, the sky, everything in them is going to be destroyed. First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3 says there's coming a day at a great judgment when God will, will destroy the heavens and the earth and create a new heaven and new earth because our sin has so blemished this world that God is going to destroy it and recreate it. There is one thing that God is not going to destroy in that great judgment and it is the lives of his children. His desire was that out of all of creation, out of all of the things that he made, that he rescue or provide an opportunity for rescue for men and women whom he loves. And he entrusted that eternal job, that most important of all jobs to his son. And so Jesus says, the reason that I came to this earth was to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus told his disciples when they said, you can't go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And Jesus says, what do you think I came here for? Jesus didn't, didn't want to go to the cross, but he knew that that was his purpose. So in the garden the night before, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross so that he could offer God's most prized creation. Every man, woman, and child who ever walked the face of this earth, he could offer you an opportunity for eternal life that only comes through Jesus. He's the only one to look to. He's the only one who's been there. He's the only one who's the eyewitness to everything. He is the only, the one and only Son of God who stepped down out of heaven, walked on this earth, died on a cross, shed his blood, and rose again for you and for me. 
Now, I want you to notice one last thing out of this passage in verse 36. This passage does not say that he will, that he destroys those who don't know him. It says we're already destroyed by our own sin. Listen to these words. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. It doesn't say God's going to take his life from him. He's going to say he's never going to see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Here's a key important thing for us to understand. This, this is what John taught on in verses 18 through 21 in last week's message. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not have to condemn the world. He didn't need to condemn the world because we're already condemned by our own sin. We are condemned, we are without life, we're headed for an eternal destiny separated from God without anything else happening. Every person on this earth is doomed, not because God dooms us, but because our sin has destroyed us and has robbed us of life. And through his son Jesus, God offers us a pathway to eternal life. And the scripture says here, those who accept the Son, those who believe in the Son, have eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will never see life. God has entrusted His one and only Son with eternal life, with the destiny of His most prized creation, us. Hey folks, this is Pastor Dennis Hester, and I want to thank you for joining First Baptist Watauga through our podcast and hearing the message today. My prayer is that you were encouraged and uplifted by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Our goal here is to equip you in your faith and to encourage you as you worship the Lord and seek to serve Him. If you have a question or you have a decision that you'd like to make, I'd encourage you to reach out to us through our website at fbcwatauga.org or simply call the church office. You can find that number or our email addresses there on that website as well. And by doing that, uh, we'd be glad to hear from you and we'd be encouraged about hearing what God's doing in your life. So God bless you and have a great day.